Hello and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your well-being, including interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my five-minute food facts series. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host, a lawyer turned nutritionist with a deep curiosity about well-being. I'm learning as much as I can about living a healthy, active and fulfilling life and sharing what I learn with you on this podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I will take a moment to mention that although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure or prevent injuries or medical conditions and is not a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today I am here with molecular nutritionist Dr Emma Beckett and don't worry, Emma will explain to us what that means. Emma's research background includes qualification and experience in nutrition, epidemiology, science management, biomedical sciences, immunology and microbiology. Phew! Emma is interested in molecular nutrition and her work focuses on gene-nutrient interactions. Ultimately, she hopes to unravel how our genes and nutrients interact to modify our risk of chronic diseases. She is also interested in how diet and genetics influence the microbiome in the gastrointestinal tract to predispose to or protect us from diseases linked to diet and lifestyle, such as colorectal cancer. Emma's career highlights include meetings with Nobel laureates in Germany and later Japan. She is also a very passionate science communicator. She's written articles for The Conversation, The Newcastle Herald and Lateral Magazine, and she has appeared multiple times on local and national radio. The focus of Emma's science communication work is on nutrition myth-busting and empowering the public to interpret nutrition research without falling prey to marketing hype. Today, the main focus of our conversation is going to be on the microbiome. I really hope you enjoy this episode because I certainly enjoyed talking with Emma. Today, I am here with Emma Beckett, molecular nutritionist. So hi, Emma, and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast. Thank you so much for having, having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. So Emma, you clearly have an enthusiasm for acquiring knowledge and advancing knowledge about the links between diet and disease. And so today we're going to focus on your work as a molecular nutritionist, and especially as that relates to the microbiome. However, first I'd like to understand something about your passion uh, for science and where that has come from. So what drew you towards studying science and working in the research field? So I guess I was very lucky. I had two scientifically minded parents. Uh, my uh-huh. dad is a geologist and my mum is a high school physics teacher. Um, so I had science in my life from a very young age, uh, but I didn't always want to be a scientist. I actually, as long as I can remember knowing that grown ups needed to have jobs, I wanted to be mm-hmm. a lawyer. And I, I actually started oh. studying law uh, at university straight out of high school. Uh, And when I started studying law, I realized that what I thought I was going to like about law, I thought I was going to love the the making an argument and the looking at evidence and figuring out the truth and explaining that to people in strong Mm. terms. I realized uh, once I started law that that's not what lawyers do. Um, They do a lot of paperwork, um, but looking at evidence and figuring out the truth is what scientists actually do. So I switched into science and lived happily ever after. (laughs) Good move. I um, didn't 
cotton on to that quite as quickly as you because I started studying law and um, yeah, it wasn't really the right fit for me. But but you know, some people love it, so each to their own. And what would you say then to young people out there who are thinking about a career in science? I would say science is a great career. Um, I love my job. I'm so lucky that every day in my job is different. Some days I'll be in the lab with a kind of stereotypical white lab with test tubes and and pipettes <laughs> and moving coloured liquids around like you'd see on TV. And then other days I'm out talking to people. Other days I'm teaching Uh I think what I would really say to people who are interested in a career in science is it's not like on TV. It's not these weird geniuses working in isolation that we kind of get this idea from, yeah. you know, dramatic and comedy TV shows. Uh, it's very much a, a teamwork and people kind of business. Um, so if, if you think you might like it, but you don't want to be a, a weirdo sitting on your own in the lab, don't worry. Very few of us are weirdos <laughs> sitting on our own in the lab. <laughs> well, that's great advice. And I think the other thing about it is it's very broad, isn't it? There are a lot of you can specialize in so many different areas or as you say go into lots of different types of scientific uh, work either research or teaching or so yeah sounds like a great opportunity for people yeah, and science can take you anywhere, really. Like if you study science at university or at high school, you think that you're kind of stuck in this set of facts. Like my first science degree was in biomedical science and mm -hmm. I didn't end up being a biomedical scientist. I ended up being a nutrition scientist. And so, uh, but in the middle, I worked uh, in a bank and, you know, I've done all kinds of other things. So a lot of those skills I learned in my early science degree were transferable skills that I could then apply to another specialist topic. So you're not stuck in the one that you first choose. So I don't mm -hmm. think you need to decide straight away. Oh, that's good advice too. I think for young people coming out of school, it's very hard to know what you really want to do because you haven't had much life experience at that stage. Well, and you feel like you need to decide in a rush when you finish school, don't yes, you? The, you do. Four years at university seems like a very long time when you're 18. But when you look back at my age, it doesn't seem like long at all. <laughs> exactly. So Emma, let's talk about your research. I understand that molecular nutrition is one of the most rapidly developing fields in nutrition science. So can you explain to us, I guess, to start this conversation off, what, what is molecular nutrition? What does that mean? Yeah, so molecular nutrition is really getting down to the nitty gritty of how the components of foods, the nutrients and the bioactive compounds, how they interact with the molecules in our body. So it mm -hmm. can be everything from the actual metabolism and the interaction with enzymes through to the interaction with our DNA. So we have nutrigenetics and nutrigenomics, which is where our nutrients interact with our DNA and can help switch them on and off off and change the way our genes are expressed. So it's basically the molecular basis of you are what you eat. So rather than saying yeah. people eat particular foods or particular dietary patterns, and we see these big external outcomes, we're looking at what's going on inside, in the cells, mm -hmm. in the DNA to try and explain that. That sounds absolutely fascinating and also quite complicated because there are so many obviously moving parts. I mean, food itself, like take an apple, for example, there's thousands of different compounds in that and then thousands of different things and molecules in our body that it can interact with. So oh, where do you start? 
It is difficult to know where to start. And, you know, sometimes when we're studying these things, we look at individual compounds. And this is where kind Mm -hmm. of those superfood stories come from. You know, this compound, we looked at it and it changed this. And so if you eat more of this food, but of course we don't eat individual compounds. And sometimes when we're doing those studies, we're looking for new ways of taking the good things in food and turning them into other products or turning them into medications. Um, Mm -hmm. But really we do eat the food in its whole structure. Um, So we do need to, in molecular nutrition as well, look at the interactions between those compounds when they're all consumed together. Yeah, well, that makes perfect sense because I think, I don't know, but one of the criticisms I think of nutrition science is it can be very reductive, as you say, like, you know, for example, studying vitamin C, but, but we don't eat vitamin C. We eat an orange or an apple or a I think the problem isn't so much the reductionist approach to the research. It's when the reductionist research gets translated into uh, what people should do. So, yeah, of course, we need to study vitamin C and vitamin D and figure out individually what they're all doing. And sometimes that's to uh, decide uh, how much we should recommend of those those amounts of nutrients and supplement recommendations. But then when we say, well, eat this food, it's high in this vitamin, that's where the story kind of gets lost a little bit because people don't really translate how much of certain things are in things and then it confuses the big picture. Yeah, absolutely. And that is such an important aspect of what you do. And I do want to come to that later in our discussion about, you know, scientific communication. But let's sort of get back onto this um, molecular nutrition discussion. So one of the things you're involved in is the examination of the link between genes, diet, and our microbiome, and how this can influence our predisposition towards health and or certain diseases. So that's a big topic. So let's let's break that down a bit. First of all, let's talk about what the microbiome is. We often hear how important that is for human health. But what is it actually? What is our microbiome? Yeah, so the microbiome is the sum of all the microorganisms that live in and on our body. Um, And often when we say microbiome, we're using the word ohm because we measure them by measuring the genes that those microbes have to detect that they're there. So we could also say microbiota to to Mm -hmm. talk about the the sum of all those microbes. So often we're talking about the gut microbiome, um, and that's the one people are most familiar with, the trillions of bacteria that live in the gut. And we often Often focus on bacteria basically because they're the most abundant, but also because they're mm-hmm. the easiest to study. But we've also got fungi, we've got viruses, and we've got other kinds of microbes that live in and on our body all the time. And what we're interested in in studying the microbiome is how they live with us. Uh, so what they're doing that's good for us, bad for us, how they're helping us, and how we're living in synergy uh, with those microbes. Yes. Okay. And so. How do we? How do you study that? Yeah, so often we're studying it by looking at the the DNA or the RNA, mm-hmm. the genes that these uh, microbes have, and we'll take them from different sites on the body. So we'll either be taking fecal samples or saliva samples, uh, cheek swabs, uh, skin skin swabs. Bacteria, viruses, uh, microbes are going to live almost everywhere on our body that there is a surface. So taking samples from those surfaces where we can or from the things that are excreted from those surfaces. So, yeah, I spent a lot of time working with bodily fluids. (laughs) Yes. Well, uh, I guess uh, you have to, don't you? Why then is it important for us to understand the microbiome? 
Yeah, so when I was in university, they taught us that the the bacteria in our guts were important because they they formed a barrier and stopped bad bacteria from growing there. Um, and so, you know, 10, 20 years ago, that's what we thought these, these bugs were doing. Um, mm-hmm. But now it's become very clear that these bugs are doing a lot more. So they're part of the ecosystem that is our body. And while they're in our body, they're secreting metabolites. They're eating mm-hmm. things that we eat and they're releasing waste products. Those waste products are then absorbed into our body. They go into our bloodstream and they travel off to our other organs. Uh, and that's where they're having these effects on health. And we're only just beginning to understand really how all that works. Oh, that is absolutely fascinating. Um, Does everybody have a different microbiome? Yeah, so everyone will have their own unique profile of microbes when it comes to what populations are there and what balance they're in. Mm -hmm. But we can see patterns where people, you can group people and say, you know, this person has this kind of pattern and these kinds of dominant ones. And uh, then you can say, you know, this group will have this pattern. And so often we're looking at the shifts in those patterns rather than the individual makeup of each person. But yeah, we are all going to be different. And do those patterns, um, do they correlate with countries, for example, like people in um, the Nordic countries will have a different generally microbiome to someone at the equator or, or is that not such a thing? Yeah, so we get different kinds of patterns and clusters of patterns based on who people are and the way they live. So our environmental mm-hmm. exposures, our dietary exposures, our different genetics and our different makeups are going to predispose us to having a different type of microbiome. Uh, but then it's malleable with different exposures. So you see people sure. who have moved between countries or changed local cuisines or even yeah. changed their their diet uh, just within their everyday life. So we see those kinds of differences Uh, so it's definitely different in different places uh, but for all kinds of different reasons yeah sure sure how then are the genes and the microbiome linked and do they both influence each other yeah so our genes and their genes are both going to be different and interact together Um, and we're really only just starting to understand how this works so we used to think that microbiomes uh, were quite stable and that you'd get yours from birth and then we found that they were quite malleable and then we found that they're malleable but they'll reset if you take away the exposure Mm -hmm. Um, and we've only really just started to look at and understand how the different receptors that are in the body are changing the way uh, the microbiome is composed and the way it survives. So if you think, for example, about um, your gut bacteria um, and the way your gut bacteria will be influenced by the movement of food through your gastrointestinal tract. So some of us Mm -hmm. will have more... Uh, robust and faster gut motility and squeeze food faster through our stomachs and our um, intestines than others. And you can see that that would have a big effect on what microbes can stay in the the gastrointestinal tract and how they survive. So all those kinds of little differences are all going to add up to influence people's microbiomes differently. Right. And you did mention before the word reset the microbiome. So what would happen, for example, if someone compromises their microbiome, for example, they take a long course of antibiotics, and as we most of us know, that can harm some of the bacteria inside our gut. Can we, in quotes, fix that? 
Yeah. So luckily for us, we never fully deplete our microbiome. So there's lots of research studies where we use mice and we completely deplete the microbiome to see what happens in the absence of having those microbes. But for humans, that's never going to happen. We're going to have little pockets and we're going to have little bits uh, within there where you can regenerate from. Uh, So yes, if you take antibiotics, particularly a long course of antibiotics, then you will get a a dysbiotic state because those Mm -hmm. antibiotics can't uh, pick which bacteria they kill, yes. um, but you will get a re-establishment. And it's what you do, I guess, in that uh, time during re-establishment that will influence how quickly you get back to good, balanced or normal, depending on how you yeah. want to phrase it. Sure. So in that period, then you'd be, I assume, trying to eat some high fiber foods and things that would feed your your gut. Yes. And I'm glad you phrased it like that because often what people talk about in that space is taking probiotics and putting more bacteria in. But what we really need to do is to put the uh, the fiber in, the, the prebiotics, the bacteria food, mm-hmm. uh, so that the ones that we want to be there, the good populations regenerate. Yes. Okay. Just from my reading over the years, that's certainly something that I think people are understanding more and more that it's about feeding our gut bacteria rather than just, as you say, I, I'm sure, and we, I do want to come to this, I'm sure there is a role for taking probiotics, but I think ultimately we want to try and get our gut bacteria to regenerate itself, I suppose. Yeah, and not do things that will, will kill the good bacteria to start with is probably even yes. more important. There's no point, you know, trying to get over a hangover with probiotics and prebiotics. You know, you're better <laughs> off not smashing those wines that are going to damage the bugs to start yes. with. Do we know then the balance between genetic and environmental factors in determining the makeup of a microbiome? I mean, mean, obviously it's almost impossible to say 50-50 or something, but is there a relative sense of what that might be like? So we do have studies where people try and put numbers on it. So we can do twin studies, for example, and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, say that the identical twins have matched DNA. So therefore the differences you can see in their microbiomes, that's explained by uh, the environmental influence. Um, But we've really spent a lot more time studying the environmental influences than we have spent studying the genetic genetic influences. Uh, So it's really difficult to say at the moment because it is so complicated. There are so many ways that these microbes are interacting with our body. And then you have these kind of feedback loops where you change the gut bacteria and then, then that can change the way different receptors are expressed. And then the changing of how those receptors are expressed will change how we detect the gut bacteria area and then that loops back in again so it's really very very complicated right wow it does sound very complicated it's like a never-ending maze (laughs) yeah i'm not (laughs) sure we we will ever figure it all out well in a way maybe not because everyone is different and if there's seven billion people on the planet with seven billion different microbiomes you know it's going to be very tricky. You did mention twin studies and I'll just jump quickly to that because I believe you're a twin. Yes, I am. I'm an identical twin. Um, An identical twin. Yes. And we have another twin sibling pair in um, my immediate family. I have fraternal uh, brother and uh, sister twin pair as well. Um, Wow. And yeah, so that really, that's probably one of the reasons why I got interested in genetics because I could really see in my family growing up the, I also should say I've got nine brothers and sisters. Um, (laughs) 
I could really see Your in my family. Were busy. Yes, yes, they were. Um, I could really see in my family those differences and similarities between us. And you know, as an identical, I really had this this sense from very early on. You, I had a molecular clone of myself. We we have the same DNA. Um, but then looking at all my other brothers and sisters, and we've all got different coloured hair and different coloured eyes, yeah. and some are tall and some are short. Um, and we all respect those differences in people. You know, we can the differences we can see, we go, oh, yeah, that's mm. our genetics. But we forget that on the inside we're different as well and the, the yes. DNA, the genes that decide how we taste or metabolise and all of those other things uh, for our bodily processes, we forget that they're different as well. And, you know, for me that's really interesting and something that I thought about probably before I even knew the words to explain it. Yeah, with identical twins, as you say, they're kind of useful in quotes for science to study things like the microbiome um, because the differences, you might say, okay, well, they're explained by environment. But I guess one of the complicating factors, often identical twins are brought up in the same environment anyway. So doesn't that complicate it a bit? Yeah, so it, it does a little bit, um, but then obviously we have deviation. So we can study, you know, my twin sister and I barely spent a night apart for our first 18 years of our lives. Uh, and then I moved to Norway and she stayed in Australia. Uh, right. And now, you know, she lives in Sydney. I live in Newcastle and, you know, we live very different lives now. I was vegetarian for 15, 16 years. She wasn't. And so it's about, you know, tracking the similarities while they're together and then what Watching mm -hmm. how things deviate. So we know that the longer identical twins live apart, the more different their microbiomes yeah. will become. And the same for couples. The longer a couple lives together, the more similar their microbiomes will become because they're contaminating and reseeding each other from yes. their own, own microbiomes all the time. Um, so, yeah, it's really about studying where we know the differences happen. Right. Well, that's fascinating. So is your twin... Uh, in science as well? Does she work in science? Kind of. Um, she's a speech pathologist, so okay. um, technically taught in education and arts, but very scientific and health focused. So we have been talking about what we eat and how that influences our microbiome. Can you explain in, I know it's obviously complicated, but can you try and explain in simple terms for us how what we eat impacts our genes and our microbiome? Mm, okay, I'll start with the microbiome because that's probably yep. the easiest one. Um, so what we eat is not just to feed us, it's to feed the microbiome as well. Um, and also what we eat, uh, particularly for the gastrointestinal microbiome, uh, what we eat is where they live. That's what the, those bugs are going to, to have to sit in and grow in and, and live and thrive in. And so if we eat, uh, you know, what we know we should eat, diets high in fruit and vegetables and whole mm. grains and cereals, and that's going to feed the, the microbiome. So that's literally what gut bacteria eat. Um, and the it's also part of the, the high fiber scaffold of the environment that they live in is important for them to thrive. And then all of the things that we know we shouldn't do, like drinking too much alcohol and eating too um, many refined carbohydrates and eating too much fat, all of those things upset that environment. They make it more yep. difficult for the, the bacteria to grow. And I keep diverting back to bacteria when really we've got to remember there are viruses and fungi and yes. everything else in there as well. But it's part of that ecosystem and that balance. And it's just much easier to study the gut bacteria at this point. So then that obviously is going to have a knock-on effect to uh, what goes on in the rest of our body. 
But in terms of our genes, it's much, much, much more complicated. So there's lots of ways that our food interacts with our genes and it works in both directions. So first we've got nutrigenomics, which is switching genes on and off with Mm -hmm. different nutrients. So for example, vitamin D can bind to a vitamin D receptor in the body. And that receptor is actually what we call a nuclear transcription factor. So it triggers switching genes on and off to turn them on, to get them to make their proteins. And that's what we're built of. And that's how our body runs. So different uh, genes will be switched on and off by different exposures to different nutrients. Uh, But then we've also got epigenetics where we have little marks put on our genes to help switch them on and off. So that's stuff like DNA methylation where the methyl groups essentially, I'm really oversimplifying, but essentially they block the machinery from getting onto the DNA to switch it on Mm -hmm. and off. Um, And those methyl groups come from our diet. So our B vitamin, um, B vitamins are part of feeding that methyl cycle uh, to make them happen. And then there's Mm -hmm. microRNAs and then there's histone modifications and all of those are modified by food Um, and sometimes it's sometimes it's directly and sometimes it's in response to what the the nutrient or the bioactive compound is doing somewhere else in the body Um, and then of course it's got we've got the other way as well where the genes we have will change the way we respond to each of those foods as well so we all have different versions of our enzymes that process our vitamins we've got different versions of the receptors that detect the Mm -hmm. nutrients and so it all loops back around and keeps influencing each other yeah, amazing. So if somebody um, has a diet that's um, devoid of, say, vitamin D or B vitamins or something, that could quite severely impact then how their, I don't even know the right scientific terms for this, but how the genes express themselves and things. Is that right? Yeah. So that's part of when we look at like our nutrient reference values in Australia, we have, mm-hmm. you know, our our RDIs and our AIs to talk about, you know, adequate intake for acute needs, you know, what we need on a daily basis to run our body. But then we've got our suggested dietary targets as well. And a lot of them are around chronic diseases. And so you're not going to, if you don't have vitamin D for a day, your genes don't switch off and you don't die immediately, but it might mean that the, uh, the genetic signaling that we need to do certain things to reduce our risk of certain diseases like cancers or, or or heart disease don't work as well over the long term if we're not meeting those targets. And so yeah. it's not like, you know, your genes, it, the body has backup systems and we've got, you know, redundancies sure. and, you know, you don't just switch off those genes and suddenly you don't have a vitamin D receptor or whatever anymore. Um, but over time, those exposures will add up and have consequences. And that's really the kind of thing we're trying to figure out so that we can all have the right diet to help us be healthy and well in old age. Yeah, sure. I mean, to me, that really speaks to having a diverse diet. So you're making sure you're covering off all the right vitamins and minerals and things. Absolutely. And diverse is much more fun. Yes, indeed it is. Tell us about some of the study that you've done and and maybe some things that have been revealed that you think are interesting. Oh, okay. So one of the things that I think is really interesting uh, that we're working on is um, how UV light interacts with our uh, 
nutrient status and our genes. So we all know that sunshine makes vitamin D, um, mm-hmm. but there's also the flip side to that where uh, getting sun exposure can actually degrade some of the vitamins. Uh, so we've got our microcirculation in our skin and we've got our nutrients getting carried in our blood and the UV rays penetrate into that microcirculation and can influence the nutrients that are circulating in our blood. And so the ones that are sensitive to sunlight, like uh folate, for example, Mm -hmm. um, can be degraded on sun exposure. And one of the things we've looked at is people with different genotypes for the enzymes that metabolize folate. So different versions of the genes for the enzymes that metabolize folate have a different rate of degradation of folate in their blood on sunlight exposure. So there's a, a UV stable version of the gene and there's a UV sensitive version of the gene. And if you've got this uh, UV sensitive version, then you are going to get a more rapid decline uh, in your folate status on sun exposure than people who have the more stable version of the gene. Which so, that's fascinating. So does that mean either you should have less sun exposure or you should eat more folate or both? Yeah, so it might mean in the future that we have recommendations for folate status or folate intake mm-hmm. that reflect both your genetic makeup and your environmental exposure. So we might need more if we've got lighter skin and spend more time yeah. in the sun, and particularly if we also have this less functional version of that, that particular gene, yes. And how do you find out whether you've got that gene or not? Can that be determined through a blood test, for example? Yeah, so it, it, so this particular gene is one of the MTHFR, um, well, this particular yeah. genotype is one of the MTHFR genotypes, which if you look on chat boards or Reddit or Facebook, there's lots of people talking about their MTHFR gen- genotypes. And there are lots of people who will sell you lots of tests to, to find out what these genotypes are. Um, I would just say that a lot of the information out there is misinformation and a lot of it is getting ahead of where the science is. So we've, we've shown this effect, uh, in a couple of different studies in a couple of different ways now. Um, but we're probably not at the point yet where I would be saying to people go out and get this gene tested to find out whether or not you need more folate, because the question needs to be, does it advance the the population advice. So the population advice is to be sun smart and the population advice is to eat a diet high in fruit and veg. If you're doing that, then you're probably giving yourself the best chance anyway. Where this research will become important will be in in really at-risk populations, people who are prone to cancers or reproductive conditions that come from the outcomes of this this deficiency or these differences that's where it's going to become important the tinkering around the edges the helping the vulnerable people it doesn't mean everyone needs to rush out and get a blood test right now yeah the worried well well that's actually a very good segue into i want to ask you about from a person on a personal level i'm very curious i did one of those gut microbiome tests where you order it in and you you know uh, send it off and you get this lovely analysis at the end of it did i waste my money I'm really You can be honest. I'm really torn on this. Hmm. What is Emma going to tell me? I can't believe that turbulent 2020 is almost over. I have a few more podcast episodes left for this year before the Southern Hemisphere summer break, and I'm really excited to announce some changes I'm launching in 2021. The first change you will see is a rebrand. When I started my podcast, I needed to come up with a name. The first one I came up with was 
the Wellbeing Podcast, but not surprisingly, this name was not available on several platforms. So I stuck my name on the front and made it Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, but frankly, I've never really loved that name. So with some help and advice over the past few months, I'm happy to announce the new name of my podcast, Vibrant Lives Podcast. I really think this name reflects what my podcast is all about, living a healthy, content and active, in other words, vibrant life. And my guests are full of energy and passion for what they do. So now back to Dr. Emma Beckett and whether I wasted my money on the microbiome test kit. So there have been some studies where people have sent off the same sample to different companies and got completely different reports back. Ooh, um, that's not great. And when we do it, it, it for research, uh, we don't just take one sample at one time from one place. Yeah. We'll take multiple samples uh, and we'll look at the, the sum of those samples. But it can be a motivator for people. So it can be to, to see, okay, I've got this, this abundance of bad bacteria mm. can be a motivator to help people improve their diet. Um, if that's the, the game you need to play to, to help yourself, and I have heard wonderful stories of people getting these tests done and then making really good changes when it comes to okay. their diet that they weren't motivated to do before. And there is a lot of research around the consumer motivation based on these products. Um, but also I, I think it can work the other way as well, where then people kind of can get tricked into thinking, well, I can't afford these tests, so what can I do? I, you know, I might as well just keep doing what I'm doing because I can't possibly know. And so, you know, get yeah. it if you want to and, you know, use it in the best way that you can, but I wouldn't, um, you know, sink your whole worth of your diet and your dietary plans into that kind of thing. I did it out of curiosity, to be honest. I just thought, you know, what, what, what's this report going to look like? And, you know, I was quite pleased with the results. It showed I had a nice diversity um, and the overall recommendation for me was to eat a little bit more resistant starch. So I've actually done that. So, Which is always a good recommendation anyway. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And Emma, I think another thing that you look at in your research, apart from the disease links, is how a person's genes can influence how they process food in the body and their food preferences, which is fascinating. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so we do a lot of work on taste and taste receptors and taste genetics. And I think we all know that we all like different foods, but yes. often we find it quite confronting when people say they taste something different to us. So we all respect the idea of, you know, sweet tooth versus no sweet tooth and, you know, people who prefer savoury over sweet. Um, but I'm one of those people who uh, coriander tastes like soap. And when, yeah, interesting. when I try and explain that to people who coriander tastes like coriander, which I can't even imagine what coriander is no. meant to taste like, people look at you like you've just said you have two heads and they really can't comprehend the fact that um, it does taste, literally taste different to you. Um, and there's some people coriander will taste like dirt too. Um, and that's because the receptor uh, that detects the volatiles uh, in our nose, uh, the volatile compound that makes coriander taste like coriander is very chem chemically similar to the 
uh, the compound that makes soap taste like soap. And so right. if you're if you've got one one base, one letter in your DNA goes wrong in that gene, then the shape of that receptor changes and you can't tell the difference between those two compounds anymore. And so, you know, for some of us, our mutations, instead of giving us X-Men powers, we get coriander tasting like soap. Um, so studying uh, why, how all those differences add up to make uh, us choose different foods or to trigger mm. us to choose different foods or to make it harder for us to choose the healthy foods is something uh, that we're studying. But then it gets even more complicated because those receptors, the taste receptors, aren't just on our tongues. They aren't just for tasting food. They're actually all through our body and they're tasting the chemical environment all the time. And so those compounds as they get into our body are part of triggering those receptors further down the gastrointestinal tract and in the blood vessels and figuring out how how the whole chain works to go from our taste receptors, modifying our diet, then to modifying our bodily processes, then to modifying our health is really what we're trying to do. Yeah, that sounds incredibly interesting. And I have, with the coriander uh, thing, I love coriander, but a couple of my kids don't. And, and I have heard that description of it tasting like soap. So if ever I make a dish with coriander, I, I put that on the side because I think you know, making having dinner that tastes like soap would be highly unpleasant. Bless you, us soap tasters do appreciate that. And I did. I didn't. I didn't make coriander in my life until I was maybe nineteen. That was the first time I ever tried coriander. I was a, at a fancy dinner party hosted by a friend's <laughs> uncle, and I literally spat out my food because I thought the people in the kitchen had spilt soap in it. So it was a little bit embarrassing for me. And I really hate these days. You know, it's it's well known now that lots yes. of us we didn't have we didn't have the information on that gene back when I was first experiencing it. But we know now that it happens. And yet you still go to these events where, you know, you've got big catering and there's there's nothing to eat that doesn't have coriander in it. Coriander. Does your twin sister have the same experience with coriander? She does with coriander. Um, but it is interesting too that we do have lots of uh, disparate food preferences. Right. Um, so I love tomato, fresh tomato on white bread with a little bit of butter or salt is my dream mm. meal. Uh, she absolutely shudders when I talk about that. So we have, <laughs> do have these trained differences as well that are yes. clearly not because of our genetics, that are clearly because of so our exposures. That, that was actually one of my questions, environment. So it does have an impact then. Um, on preferences. Yeah. So you've got all these, these differences that are based in genetics. So, you know, bitter tasters versus non-tasters and, you know, looking at people who think that uh, Brussels sprouts are very buttery and not bitter at all. Whereas other people are like, they are the most bitter thing ever. How dare you try and feed them to me? But you can train yourself on top of that. Um, so if you think back to your first cup of coffee or your first beer, uh, yeah. you probably didn't go yum coffee. You probably didn't go yum beer. But most of or us... olives. Or olives, yep. All kinds yeah. of, yep. Sorry, I always use the alcohol options. <laughs> um, and... You know, most of us didn't like it to start with um, and we probably put sugar in our coffee when we were new to drinking it or lots of milk and that often uh, tapers off over time um, and we learn to savour the bitterness in the beer and we learn to savour the bitterness in the olives. So part of that is the loop to our brain changing mm -hmm. because bitter is a an aversive taste from an evolutionary perspective to protect us from poison sure. and coffee, beer, even too many olives could could be poison. Um, 
So our brain learns over time, actually, that didn't kill me. Actually, I, I didn't die. I don't need to be as, a, as aware of that taste. But also it's about the enzymes in our mouth changing. So uh, if we get exposed to more of the bitter compounds, the different uh, enzymes in our saliva that deal with those uh, compounds and break them down actually adapt over time. So I always say to people, if you learn to like coffee, if you learn to like beer, you can learn to like vegetables. Well, that was actually what I was thinking about when you were talking. I was thinking, well, what's the practical application of this study? And I think one would be introducing kids to vegetables because they do often taste bitter to children. And if you just left them to their own devices, they'd probably never go near vegetables. But the advice, I believe, is to constantly just to keep uh, repeatedly exposing Mm -hmm. children to vegetables. So is that the kind of applications you're looking at? Absolutely. So that's another thing that we know as well from studies is that um, your, your sense of taste is much more acute when you are younger and your bitter taste does dampen down as you age. And again, from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense because kids will put anything in their mouth and you don't want them to die. And so giving uh, kids a taste so that they get exposed and they get that loop is part of training them to, to like the vegetables. So if you make it a traumatic event where you're like, eat this broccoli or you're going to be in trouble, then of (laughs) course that's not going to help them reset that loop. So yeah, um, making it a, we call it a no thank you bite you if you if you put it in your mouth that's okay and then you're allowed to say no thank you um so yeah it is part of the taste training and it comes to, it comes back to as well what mum eats while she's pregnant as well that gets into the amniotic oh, fluid and when she's breastfeeding that gets into the breast milk and all of that's about taste training as well Ah, oh, well that's interesting because i love broccoli it's one of my favorite foods i ate it when i was pregnant But it took me about 16 years of constant exposure to get my son to eat broccoli. Which is not not terribly surprising. Um, It does (laughs) does take a while for that that bitter intensity that protects us in youth to wear off. And sometimes I think back to the vegetables that I hated and how much I enjoy them now and think, you know, would there could we do a way of shortcutting that? So, you know, I've got these long-term plans. These are my harebrained ideas that we could like, you know, add broccoli powder to infant formula so that they're getting little bits of sensitization from very, very early on. But of course, you're not allowed to mess with infant formula because it's very finely balanced in its nutritional um, composition. So, you know, if we can expose people earlier, maybe we can get them onto healthier patterns earlier. But also, yeah, we don't want to make it a thing because we don't want people to think vegetables are a chore because I'm so sick of people acting like vegetables are a chore. You know, we can make them a joy as well. What springs to mind there is I interviewed um, a Japanese uh, wellness blogger, Kaki Okumura, and one of the things she does is Um, cooking little cooking demonstrations and she writes about Japanese food and just the the variety of ways that they present eat and use vegetables in their cooking is fascinating I think um, sometimes in Australia and US places like that we can be a little bit limited in our imagination when it comes to vegetables so but also um, diet cultures ruined it for us it's made us think mm. that we need to eat the healthiest of healthy all the time or not bother. And so people think the option is eat tasty, delicious, creamy, salty, meaty, whatever food, or 
bland steamed vegetables. And there's these beautiful in-betweens where you can make Brussels sprouts with bacon and nuts and, you know, all those things that give them flavor and make them palatable. And, you know, I always say, you know, pasta, people think pasta is, oh, too many carbs. I can't eat pasta. For me, pasta is the perfect vessel to get veggies in. So yes, yes, they can taste good. So we've been talking about food preferences and likes and dislikes and how that can be influenced by your genes and your microbiome. And people obviously have different responses to dietary interventions. So you'll have a study, people will be given the same diet, some people will respond really well and others not so much, depending on what they're looking for. It could be weight loss or something like that. Is this one of the reasons why the one-size-fits-all diets are not always effective? Absolutely. And, you know, there's so many reasons why there's no one-size-fits-all approach Mm. to our diet. It it is our genes, it is our microbiome, and it's also our lifestyle and our priorities and how we live as well. So we can't divorce that idea of a healthy diet from who we are biologically and who we are in the world. Um, And often... Uh, I guess that's where nutrigenetics and looking at our genes becomes really important in those non-responders. And for a very long time in nutrition science, we wrote the non-responders off as non-compliant or, yeah, exactly. or some other explanation for, you know, why this 10% or 5% didn't lose weight or didn't, you know, get the benefits of the salt-reduced diet on their blood pressure. Um, and I think that's really where where this becomes important is figuring out why that 5% or 10% or whatever it is didn't respond and what we need to do differently to get them to respond. Do they need a higher dose? Do they need a stronger intervention? Do they need a completely different intervention? And so we, we make these general recommendations for the masses, which are very broad and are by definition designed to cover most people. But then we have these people who it doesn't work for and will never work for no matter you know, how strictly they follow the advice. So if yeah, sure. I'm really interested fairness. I've got maybe it's being from a big family. Fairness is a real big trigger point for me. Um, and I think it's it's a bit unfair if we can't figure out how to make all these things work for everyone. Yeah. And so do, are you saying then that we are heading towards perhaps a more personalised or it's sometimes referred to as precision nutrition, um, which looks more at our genetic makeup and our our specific microbiome. Is that kind of where nutrition may be heading, do you think? Yeah, I definitely think it, it's where we're heading. Uh, it, it won't necessarily, or well, it won't ever, replace our population guidelines because the population oh. guidelines are always a good jumping off point. But mm. the personalised nutrition, the precision nutrition, will be about taking the people who are at risk of particular conditions like bowel cancer or you know irritable bowel disease or people who are having trouble conceiving, people who are uh, very resistant to, to weight loss or yeah. you know diabetes, whatever, and finding the things that work for those particular people. So people with particular conditions at risk of those conditions or people who need that information as a motivator. So we'll never throw the, the population guidelines in the bin, um, but definitely using the this information to help more people in a better way is definitely part of the future of nutrition. Yeah, I think that sounds fantastic because it could be very demoralizing for someone who thinks they're doing the right thing, following the guidelines, but not having the results that they're hoping for. 
Um, and so if there's, you know, something that can help them eat the diet that is best for them, then that's a, that's a wonderful um, evolution of the application of nutrition science. But, but also just remembering too that it is actually harder for some people to follow the guidelines because some people will have versions of the receptors for the appetite hormones that don't work as well. And some yeah. people will have different versions of the the genes that uh, – of part of secreting the appetite hormones that don't work as well. So there's a lot of, you know, just eat less dummy um, kind of attitude to dieting yeah. and weight loss. And for some people, it, it truly is that much harder. So looking at a diet that works for someone else and going, well, they did it, why can't I? And then putting the blame back on yourself, perhaps it is just harder for you and you do need a different strategy. Yeah, I, I mean, I think just, you know, looking around at your own circle of friends and your family, I think it's it's obvious that, you know, we're all different and we're different shaped and, yeah, some people um, are naturally very lean and others are not. We're all different shapes. And we would never tell someone to try a little bit harder and maybe your eyes would be a bit bluer, but we do we yeah. do that when it comes to body shape. We don't say, oh, if you just think about it enough and if you had some real dedication, you'd be taller. But we do say that to people when it comes yeah. to the size of their hips and it, it makes no sense because there's just as many genes influencing the size of your hips as there are influencing the colour of your eyes. Absolutely. I think it's that the other thing this in, in my head it seems to be leading to is a, a just a more accepting approach, you know, as we do realise that um, people respond differently, taking the blame out of it all. Yeah, absolutely. And there is some argument that it could go in the other direction. So if we told people, you know, if you add up all of the genes that we know um, – contribute to obesity risk, mm -hmm. then that can explain several kilos of different between weight between certain people. And there is there is some people who would argue that the risk in the other direction is great as well. If you found out that you had the obesity gene, maybe you'd go, well, oh, well. I'm going to be obese anyway. It's my genes. Why should I try? Mm. And there is always that risk that we could be demotivating some people. And so we need to make sure that we are careful in the way we use this information and the way that we counsel people on this information, which yeah. is again, why I don't recommend doing the, the self-test online and going into a chat room to, to get your, your results interpreted. Um, I'd much, much prefer to recommend people go and see a dietitian and get this done properly so that they can have yeah. conversations with someone who, who can help them understand that information. Obviously, then that's going to be a very tailored conversation. Emma, one of the things that you're also very passionate about, and this has been coming through in our conversation, is um, scientific communication, including myth-busting. And I read that you are a committee member and have also participated in Pint of Science Australia. What's that? Oh, I love Pint of Science. Um, it's it's basically taking science to the people in the pubs. Um, so taking <laughs> science to people in ways they understand and ways they care about in a, a relaxed environment. So it's it's everything from scientists giving talks to trivia games to doing, you know, we did pin the ping pin the egg on the sperm um, at one of our events to show how difficult conception is, how hard it is for that that sperm to find and connect with the egg. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a fun way of, of bringing science to the people. And, you know, the pint of science is partly because we do it in pubs, um, but it's also because, you know, you're getting that pint-sized serve. We don't have to teach everyone everything about science for them to, to get a bit of joy and a little bit of extra understanding out of it. 
Oh, that's brilliant. I love the sound of that. Emma, we all eat. We all have opinions about what we eat and lots of it ends up on social media. So can you explain the difference to the listeners between scientific evidence and anecdote? Mm. We do get a lot of anecdotes from people. So, you know, when people are telling you, I did this diet and I lost weight and you think, well, I'll do that diet, I'll lose weight. Uh, And that Mm. sounds great. And you trust that person. We put so much trust in people that we know, whether it's our mum or our aunt or our sister or our brother. And so their story, we've seen them do it is so different to when we do a study on weight loss and do lots of different people doing lots of different things uh, and then follow them over the long term. So you'll see someone lose weight on a particular diet and you'll go, that's the diet, the diet's great. And then they gain the weight back and you'll go, oh, well, that's them. They gained Mm. the weight back. The diet was great, then they failed. Whereas when we do weight loss studies scientifically, we have lots of different people and we see that most people put the weight back on in the long term. Um, So it's not the the individual that's failing. It it truly is the diet that's failing. Um, And so when we look at a a scientific study, we look at lots of people. um, And so we look at the the average difference or the the group difference uh, rather than individuals. Because if you just look at individuals, you... You remove all those extra variables. You remove yeah. the the lifestyle, other lifestyle exposures. You remove the genetic differences, um, and you've just got that one jumping off point. Whereas when we mm. get people into studies, we try and randomise them so everyone's coming from different jumping off points, and everyone has different genetics, and everyone has different exposures, and you put those people into two different groups, and that balances out those variables across those groups. So just because something works for one person uh, doesn't mean it's going to work for lots of people, doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And we we see selected part of anecdotes. Um, and even yes. those studies, scientific studies are all, always very specific and focused and, you know, capture a point in time or one particular cohort. It gives you that broader view when you look at the body of evidence as a whole. And so, you know, you see you know, this person lost weight or this person didn't get heart disease or this person didn't get cancer. You always hear those stories about the grandma who lived to be 104 and she smoked and drank, but she ate four raw eggs every day. And, you know, that could lead you to think maybe you need to eat four raw eggs every day and then you can do whatever you like. But she had a very specific set of circumstances and a very specific set of genes um, and also maybe didn't record her date of birth properly um, back in the day. Um, So, you know, there's lots of ways we can get distracted by anecdotes, but there's this weird psychological thing that we put more power in them than we do in the actual scientific evidence. And we need to work harder as science communicators to get people to trust us the way they trust the people that they know in their everyday life. And that's a big part of what I do. Um, Just letting people see me as a human and Mm -hmm. a scientist so that I'm not just a random in a white lab coat telling them what to do. I'm a person that they know that they can trust and have this conversation with. Obviously, Pint of Science Australia plays into that as well. Scientists are real humans. Yeah, and, and meeting people where they are not not yeah. bringing them to where we are both physically and intellectually meeting people at their place and at their point of learning yeah well that's great and emma so if someone's reading some about some miracle diet on the internet or in so on social media what are some of the red flags we should look out for that 
should make us think, oh, look, you know, I need to look into this a bit more or critique it or work out if it's um, valid or not. So what are some of the things that you would think, oh, red flag, alarm bells? The the three biggest red flags are uh, promising quick, instant, dramatic results um, and anything where it's saying to cut out a whole food group or a yeah. whole, you know, group of foods or where it's saying to just eat within one food group or just yeah. eat one food, anything that's either of those extremes and saying that it's quick and instant and, you know, uh, really dramatic effects um, is probably something to be sus of. Yeah. Yeah, I think I can I can understand why it might appeal to someone because it's simple. Absolutely, and people love simple messages, and that that's really one of the reasons why saying things like "quit all sugar" that's why people love that kind of thing because it it is mm. simple, right? I just don't eat that, and I'm following these rules, and I will get results. But a that's not fun, and b it's not necessary. So you know, there's if we we put a little bit of extra thought into it, we can make eating uh, and living with uh, the foods that we we need to eat to be healthy. We can make that that more fun, more enjoyable, more sustainable. Food isn't just fuel, is it? It's it's part of the way we live as well. And yeah, Absolutely. these it's diets fun. can ruin that a lot. So Emma. Could you recommend then a couple of sources where people can find some some reliable information about diet? Yeah, so I guess if you're looking for information about what you should be eating, most of us are looking online these days. You know, that that yeah. is the, the source of a majority of our information. So don't look at random websites. So you want to look for a website that's a .gov or a .org, some kind of official um, so looking at the Australian Dietary Guidelines, the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating, uh, those yeah. are good jumping off points. And then each of the the state health bodies in Australia have good resources online that can point you to the right people to ask for advice, but also have simple kind of resources. So if you are going to go online, go to those official sources, go to the Australian government, the state governments, go to the, the big non-government organisations uh, that have that good reputation. Don't go to a celebrity website yeah. just because they're pretty they if you eat you'll eat what they do you'll look like them generally they're trying to sell you something um, or, or they're just genetically blessed um, and plus it's their job to look good so you know they spend a lot of money and time uh, into looking the way they look so go to those official sources uh, don't stray away from that social media is not your friend when it comes to uh, people giving dietary advice or nutrition information there are a lot of us who work in nutrition and dietetics who are working hard to make it a better space but there's a lot of people on social media who prey on that desire for a sense of community and mm. turn the the dietary advice into this being part of a faction or being part of a, a tribe um, not my word theirs I, I don't like to use that word when it comes um, to nutrition but they prey on that fact that people, they're not just looking for something to eat. They're looking for someone to, to have this ownership and this sense of community with. So social yes. media is full of people preying on that. Um, and even though there are good people who are trying to work against it, um, it is a difficult place to get this information. Yeah, it is tricky. And I will put links to some of those sites that you've mentioned in the show notes. And Emma, with all your knowledge about the microbiome and the links between diet and disease, 
Can you give us some tips then on what you would consider a, a healthy eating pattern? Yeah, so there is, you know, we are revising the Australian Dietary Guidelines right now, um, and there is a lot of criticism of the guidelines from celebrity diet gurus and even from within the nutrition and dietetic community. The biggest problem with the guidelines is people aren't following them. Um, So if you follow the guidelines properly, they are good advice. So it's a diet high in fruit and veg, a variety of fruit and veg, not eating too much meat uh, and choosing lean meats uh, and eating whole grains, whole grains and cereals. So, you know, we have this whole low carb movement and we cut out all the grains and cereals, but you inadvertently, uh, by doing that, you can inadvertently go low fiber and fiber the prebiotics uh, and the uh, other fibers are really important for that gut health and those those microbes. So we don't want to be cutting them out completely. We want to be reducing our exposure to the highly refined ones where we can. Um, so getting that diversity and getting that joy back into eating, I think, is is part of the advice. But also making sure you're getting, you know, the the variety of nutrients through eating different coloured fruits and veg, and getting the fiber through the fruit and veg and through the whole grains as well. Yeah, yeah. So variety is king, isn't it? And unprocessed, uh, well, avoiding highly processed foods, I think. Yeah, I mean, processed foods have their place. I think we yes. we t- try and take the easy way out by demonising processed foods a lot and saying, just eat fresh whole foods. But that's difficult. It's difficult to eat fresh whole foods and it's more expensive because, you know, it's we hear this argument all the time, actually it's cheaper to buy fresh whole foods, which is true if you just look at the cost of putting them in your shopping basket. But then you've got to think about the perishability factor uh, and the, the skills and the creativity that people need to be able to turn them into a suitable, tasty meal that they want to eat. And so processed foods often get a bad rap um, and we then tend to lump all processed foods in together. And, you know, pasta is a processed food and, you know, yeah, Pasta can be a good vehicle for getting people to eat more vegetables. So and sourdough bread and exactly. Like so uh, I, I get the the eat as as close to whole as possible being the best nutritional advice, but it doesn't mean we can't eat any processed foods to make accessing those fresh whole foods more convenient and more accessible. Yeah, that's great advice, Emma. I touched on this before. Do you recommend probiotic supplements or is just eating the foods that that promote gut health and feed our gut bacteria is that enough? What would you what would you say? I wouldn't recommend taking any supplement unless you have been medically advised. So we have this whole idea in nutrition that more is more, so supplements are great. Um, But if you're not deficient in something, putting more of it in doesn't help, and that goes for probiotics as well as vitamins and minerals. Um, So one of the important things to remember with probiotics is a lot of them are proprietary strains, single strains of single organisms. Um, And if you're not deficient in that single strain, then that's not going to do you much benefit. Um, So looking at doing things that can um, encourage the growth of the good bacteria, like eating the high fiber diet, not killing them with alcohol and high fat diets is probably more important 
there are cases where people need to be careful with probiotics, for example, when they're on chemotherapy. Um, so, you know, that's going to damage your gut microbiome, but you don't want to be throwing things in that are going to trigger immune responses uh, when you're in that state. So people need to be careful about reintroduction. Um, so again, it's about variety. So um, getting them from food um, and fermented foods will have a high variety of uh, bacteria in them. Um, that said, not all fermented foods have live bacteria remaining in them so not all of them will be probiotics they're not interchangeable um, but you know I do things like I buy a different brand of yogurt every time because each of those yogurt companies has their own strain and there's some coming through now that are um, more diverse cultures they're not just using the single single strain but even then I buy a different different one every time because that's my best bet for getting the most out of that bacteria but it's really better to look after what we have first rather than to try and put more in yeah oh that's great advice and I'm going to definitely take up your yogurt advice because I tend to stick to the same brand because I like it it makes life more fun too though variety is truly the spice of life (laughs) Emma who or what inspires you Oh, gosh. That's a big question. Um, <laughs> Sorry to dump that on you. I'm definitely, um, I'm very motivated by fairness. So I'm, I'm very much about um, making information accessible so that everyone can understand it and everyone can use it. So I'm very much not interested in telling people what to do. I'm interested in giving people information mm-hmm in a way that they understand so that they can use it. So fairness is definitely one of my big triggers. Um, In terms of inspirational figures, um, definitely my mum. My mum, you know, raising all us kids um, and doing it in such a fun way, you know, thinking back to food and and food heroes. My mum, we grew a lot of our own food when we were kids. Um, And in hindsight, we did that because you probably couldn't afford to feed a family our size on one paycheck (laughs) if you didn't grow a lot of your own food. But we used to do these big, you know, garden working bees and, you know, going down into the garden on the weekends, you know, to harvest all the food and plant more food and tend to the weeds. It was this big fun family activity that we really loved doing. Um, And she made everything from scratch. We had barely any, you know, shop bought food um, when we were kids All everything was baked from scratch and everything made from scratch. Um, And so, you know, seeing how she did that, but still made it fun. We didn't go, oh, we're eating food from scratch because we're poor and can't afford to buy shop bought things. Uh, We didn't know. We didn't know that that was it. Um, And it did have a bit of a flip when I left home and had my own money and my own time and decision-making. And so to me now, like really bad quality shop-bought cake is like the coolest novelty to me. I'm like, oh, cake that you can just get. This is amazing. Um, So it did have a bit of a backfire effect for a little while. But now I look at all the things that I know how to make from scratch. Um, You know, I make my own candy. I don't buy candy at the shops. I can can make my own candy and add my own flavors and do my own things to it. Um, And I wouldn't know how to do any of that if I didn't have my mum and, you know, that kind of basic upbringing uh, in that that kind of old-fashioned way. It's very interesting what you take for granted, isn't it, in terms of learning cooking skills. I mean, my mum's a wonderful cook and my sister and I both love cooking. I'm not as good as my mum, to be honest, but a lot of stuff I just know how to do because I grew up watching my mum. 
And it's really easy to take that for granted. And often when we're saying, oh, people should just eat more vegetables, vegetables take preparation to make them taste good. Like you can't just pick up a pumpkin and bite into it like you do an apple. (laughs) And so, you know, we really do need to think about how do we make that more accessible for people and, you know, help them access the equipment and and know what to do with the equipment and, you know, how do we make that simple. don't just assume that they know it. Yeah, just because just because it's obvious to us doesn't mean it's obvious to everyone, and that's a really big problem in nutrition communication. Is people think their level of expertise is where everyone should be coming in at, and it really isn't. Mm, no, that's also a, a good observation. So, Emma, my final question, and I like to ask all of my guests this one: if you could recommend two things that people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? Two things to improve their well-being. It doesn't have to be food-related. It can be anything. They probably are going to be food-related for me, though, (laughs) because that really is my life. Um, Well, the first big picture one, not food-related, I would say run your own race. Um, There's so much competition in society, whether it's weight or health or career success or, or anything else and being a twin I obviously was acutely aware of that growing up and you know I'd say I've done something and the the next question would be and what about your sister um, and since I've learned to to be me and and embrace my authentic self and not try to compete with other people I've been a much happier healthier person um, so run your own race I think would be my my first piece of advice um, and then for well-being, I think bringing food all together into well-being rather than focusing on nutrients and nutrition is focus on small changes that can bring joy and nutrition into your life. So don't go from eating a, a diet high in fast foods and d- enjoyable snacks to only ever eating salad. Don't Don't try and do those things in in big jumps go small changes go how can I add one vegetable to this how can I add one serve of fruit in my day what can I do to make this single thing that I'm making or eating one little edge better Um, so baby steps in any change to try and improve your diet or or anything that you're doing to try and improve yourself baby steps because big jumps are much harder yeah, and they're less likely to be sustainable, I would say. Much more likely well. to hurt yourself with a big jump. <laughs> mm. Yeah. <laughs> Emma, thank you very much. Um, it's been a real pleasure chatting to you today. And if someone wants to follow what you're doing, what's the best place for them to do that? I'm on all of the social medias. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. because I grew them all organically, they're all different handles. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Synapse101. I'm on Instagram at Emmy underscore 101. Uh, and I'm on Facebook as Dr. Emma Beckett, food and nutrition scientist. Um, and on my uh, Instagram and my Twitter, you can see me every day with a new food outfit. When you combination of food outfits and a fun food fact to go with them. That's wonderful. Well, I will just say, um, Emma and I are looking at each other over Zoom. She is wearing a gorgeous pink shirt with avocados all over and it. Matching and matching avocado earrings. Avocado earrings. I thought they that were. actually fit together in the two halves to become a full anatomically correct oh. avocado. <laughs> wonderful. So thank you very much, Emma. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. And that was the wonderful and vibrant molecular nutritionist, Dr. Emma Beckett. I will put links to Emma's social media handles in the show notes. Thank you for listening today. And I do hope that you found today's interview with Emma interesting. If you did, please share the podcast and tell your friends about it. 
And if you could take a minute to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it will help people find my podcast. If you would like to subscribe to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, you can subscribe on all good podcast providers like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio and Google Podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast. And also please check out my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com. Producing the podcast is a labor of love. It has become my full-time job and I dedicate a lot of time, money and effort towards it. So if you enjoy my podcast and would like to support it, I would be so grateful. You can make contributions via Patreon or PayPal, which you can access from the donate page on my website. I'll put a link in the show notes, so please do check it out. Another way you can support my podcast is by purchasing a book from the bookshop on my website. If you click on the Amazon link in my bookshop, at no extra cost to you, I receive a small commission when you buy a book because I'm an Amazon affiliate. Thank you so much for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.